0: My name is Kyle Burkholder. I'm the pastor here at Covenant Church and just one of the elders that has the great privilege of uh, leading us in our mission to know Jesus and make him known. And today, uh, my privilege is to continue on with our sermon series that we are calling The Way. And essentially, what is happening is Jesus and his disciples are traversing a hostile land. And so, today, what we're going to ask is who's hostile here? What we tend to do is see uh, the world in pretty black and white terms, and we see enemies here and, and friends there, and, and what we're going to look at today is there's actually two types of people that are hostile to Jesus. The first are those who intentionally oppose Jesus and obviously reject his teaching and his lordship, and that one's a pretty easy, clear-cut one. The second one is where we're going to spend our time, and this, this group of people who are hostile to Jesus are those who in, unintentionally find themselves bound and captivated by religious rules or cultural rulers Often in our culture today, these are people who are Christians in name, but have lost Jesus along the way and didn't even know it. So today we're going to be talking about rules and rulers and gospel rebellion. And we're going to do so by jumping into the book of Luke chapter 13, and we'll get started there. We'll put it on the screens. You can read along with me. Scripture says this, he, Jesus, Jesus was teaching in one of the meeting places on the Sabbath. There was a woman present so twisted and bent over with arthritis that she couldn't even look up. She had been afflicted with this for 18 years, and when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you're free. He laid hands on her, and suddenly she was standing straight and tall, giving glory to God. And the meeting place president, furious because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the congregation, Six days have been defined as work days. Come on one of the six if you want to be healed, but not the seventh, not on the Sabbath. But Jesus shot back. You frauds. Each Sabbath, every one of you regularly unties your cow or donkey from its stall, leads it out for water, and thinks nothing of it. So why isn't it all right for me to untie this daughter of Abraham and lead her from the stall where Satan has had her tied these 18 years? And when he put it that way, his critics were left looking quite silly and red-faced. The congregation was delighted, cheered him on. So Jesus is walking through Samaria, and as the Sabbath comes, he finds himself teaching in a synagogue. This is very normal. The way that it would have worked in that day and age is a little different than how we have it. We typically have people that are the regular teacher or preacher at a, a church. But for a synagogue, they would typically have had whoever the rabbi in town was open up the scroll and teach from that. And so Jesus, having been on the path, stops at this synagogue on this certain day and is the one teaching because he is a rabbi, and so he's allowed to stand in the middle and teach. Now, as we think about what does this look like when Jesus is teaching, our brains kind of go to something similar to this. There's some equivalency where like, well, he must be in the front, and Jesus is wearing the little wireless microphone that Madonna wore back in the 80s, and it it doesn't look like that at all. And so let me show you a picture of a first-century Jewish synagogue, and so what you're going to see is there's kind of a little squat, almost like a bench-looking thing. That's where the scripture would have gone. And then those two levels of stone on the outside, those kind of two little steps, that's where people are sitting. And this is about the size of a large living room. And so when we hear that Jesus is teaching on the Sabbath in a synagogue in Samaria, this is maybe the picture we should have. And this is a synagogue in Magdal that was unearthed about 15 years ago. And this is as big as it was. So maybe there's 15, maybe there's 18, maybe there's 32 people crammed on those two little steps around Jesus, and he stands in the middle, and they're having a discursive moment. He says something, and someone has a question, and then he says something else, and someone goes, well, what about this? And they're having a conversation, and this is how it worked. And so Jesus, in the middle of this square, looks up, and he sees this woman who is so bent, she can't look up. She's so broken after 18 years. So he calls her over, and he touches her, and he heals her. It's miraculous. We don't know what he's teaching, but we know what he's doing. And it says, immediately after he does this, the ruler of the synagogue objects, which is sort of surprising for us. Now, this is his job. He is, uh, much like the elders of our church, he is responsible to uphold right doctrine and teaching. And so if Jesus is breaking one of the rules, his job is to point it out. One of our elders at our recent elder meeting had uh, this kind of neat phrasing that he used for, what does an elder do? People ask me sometimes, well, what do the elders do? And I say, well, it's kind of hard to explain. It's, a, it's one of those things that if you don't know, you think nothing, and then you get into it, and you go, oh gosh, this is weighty. And one of our elders said, we're um, like guards in the watchtower around the walled city, always on the lookout for threats, and always on the lookout for, for something that's going to our unity, for something that's going to lead us astray. And and sometimes that requires we come down off the guard tower and we're caring for people personally. And sometimes it requires that we make big proclamations, but mostly these are people that have been called to be on the lookout to be caring and to be overseeing. So if I was to say something uh, totally anti-biblical today, if I was to say something that was just outside of of orthodox Christianity, our elders would address it, and next week, instead of me standing up here, they would stand up and go, hey, last week Kyle said this thing, and it's just not true, and so we need to kind of correct that so we don't start going down a path that isn't right. And so their job is to hold the, the line on who we are and what we believe. So anyway, this ruler is much in that design, and he jumps up, and he reminds the people of the rules. No celebration for the community member. No gratitude for this unexplainably incredible miracle. He says, don't forget your rules. (laughs) Rules. I'm going to drag you back uh, for the second time in in the last few weeks. I'm going to drag you back to the fateful day of September 11, 2001. Some of you remember the events because you kind of lived through them. You were watching on television wherever you were. You were... You were experiencing them in in real time. Some of you have read about them in a history book and and kind of, it seems a little fuzzy, but it's close enough. If you were living through that season, there was this really powerful uh, moment that was captured in the phrase, let's roll. A lot of people remember, let's roll. So in the morning, planes are being hijacked. And as these terrorists take over planes, they turn them and they're flying them into buildings. The country is in shock. The country is under attack. And it's all being broadcast live on television. Somewhere near Cleveland, it happens again. And United Flight 93 is hijacked. Passengers of this hijacked plane are then forced into the back of the plane. The hijackers with box cutters force them into the back rows of the plane. They stuff them there As they go into the cockpit and begin to turn the plane back east, the passengers realize that something is terribly wrong, and this is the day where there were phones built into the back of the airplane seat, and they begin to pick up the phones and try to dial out. They get a hold of an operator for the phone management kind of company, and this operator alerts them to what's really happening. Yes, you're being hijacked, but there's this bigger thing happening. These planes are being weaponized, and they're flying into buildings, and I'm really sorry, it's gone this way. Well, these passengers realize that they can either sit back and wait for something to happen or they can make something happen. And it turns out later, as, as you piece together the plot that was there, this was the plane that was bound for the White House or the Capitol, depending on where they found favorable airspace. So the passengers in the back of the plane, they gathered and they, they took a vote as to what they should do. And they whisper and they're quietly voting on what are we going to do? We can't let this happen. The operator says it's happening everywhere. They recite the Lord's Prayer. They recite Psalm 23. And then Todd Beamer, who has been on the phone with the operator, he sets the phone down. doesn't hang it up, but he sets the phone down. And the operator hears him say, let's roll. And after that, there's a commotion and there's screaming and there's fighting you can listen to the recording of the cockpit recorder, it's chilling. They heroically rush the cockpit, and they attack the hijackers, and the plane then goes down, the plane has crashed into a Pennsylvania field, and these brave souls took action. They gave their lives so that countless other lives were saved. So just imagine, as we leave the reality of that difficult day, imagine if the president of United Airlines, in his statement following that day, stood up and said, we condemn these actions because clearly the fastened seatbelt sign was on and this group of passengers was breaking the rules. No. It's almost distasteful to suggest it. He would never have said that. The fastened seatbelt sign is there to protect people and save lives. These people forget the sign. They went and protected people and they saved lives. And so no one's going to make a big deal of the fastened seatbelt sign. And yet this is what's happening in this synagogue where this woman who has been suffering for 18 years is miraculously healed. And the ruler says, but the fastened seatbelt sign was on. You can't do this on, on Saturday. You have to wait. To which I say Jesus ignores the seatbelt sign in life. Rules exist to serve the larger will of God. We don't exist to serve the rules. When we say the will of God, that's a loaded word. In your scripture, will either means plan or desire. It's either God's plan, these events will happen, or his desire. I want this person to do this thing. You should lean in right here. Go help that person. Go minister here. There's a desire, and then there's a, the overarching plan Like, if there was an appointment on your calendar to go and see the doctor, there's a desired outcome of that appointment. First, it is your will that you would meet with the specialist and discuss your results. That's your plan. You're going to get that to happen. Even if it's canceled, you're going to reschedule. You're going to accomplish your will of meeting with the specialist. It's also your will that you would find a path to full healing and restoration. That's your desire. Not necessarily guaranteed, but it would be nice. And both of those are your will. It's your will to have the appointment. It's your will to be healed. The difference here is that God's will, his plan or his agenda, can't be busted by humanity. We take a deep breath. God's will can't be busted by humanity lest we be more powerful than God. That's sort of one of those logic puzzles where you go, well, what about, no, no. God's will, his overarching plan for history and humanity cannot be broken by people. But his desires in the moment can. If God says lean in and we lean back, if God says I need you to go help this person. And we go, oh, I'm just not comfortable with that. Then his desire has gone unfulfilled and yet his plan will be fulfilled. We can't break the plan, but we can absolutely go the other direction from his desires. So if his plan is that Kyle will be saved and that Ken will be the one that leads me there, whether Ken fulfills God's desire, God's plan is going to be accomplished. God is going to find a way to to get me into the world of salvation whether Ken decides to participate or not. This matters. This matters. This matters in how we pray and how we behave. You ever hear that old phrase, uh, act like everything depends on you and pray like it depends on God? Usually those cutesy phrases that end up cross-stitching on somebody's wall, I don't like those because usually they're not really true. This one actually is pretty true. We walk through the world and if we, we would behave as if it's up to us, but pray and know in the back of our minds that ultimately this is God's to do, that means we are behaving through the prism of God's desires and yet we are resting In the prism of God's overarching agenda, the problem is we get caught up chasing human will, human plans, human agendas, human desires, and we chase those over God's will. And God, here's the deal, God has an agenda for your life. God has an agenda for humanity. All rulers have agendas, and all rulers then have rules to enforce the agenda. Often, we carry multiple agendas at once. And here's the challenge for you and I, often the purity of the human agenda is colored by the pursuit of human approval. So often for us, the purity of our human agenda is actually tainted, it's actually stained a little bit by our desire for human approval, that the thing I know I'm supposed to be about is kind of like pulled a little bit because I'd really want these people to think well of me. Let me explain it these ways. A principled politician wants honorable legislation, but also, they want to get re-elected and have the approval of voters, and so sometimes they'll waffle off the thing they know they're supposed to do because, it, well, you know, if I don't get re-elected, then I can't accomplish our larger, so I, I need the approval. Oh. A physician might want you uh, to be better and want to try an experimental procedure in order to get you there. They also want to avoid a malpractice lawsuit and maintain the approval of the medical ethics board. There's a pull there. The pastor might want a bold new faith initiative that will make everyone in the church super uncomfortable but bless the city. But he also wants the approval of the congregation because how do you make that work? Synagogue ruler here is attempting to lead God's people in hostile territory, no less, to faithfulness and righteousness. And the rules help him keep people, it's kind of like guardrails, keep people on this path to religious righteousness. And so the rules help the authority structure remain intact, and the rules bind people to these, these paths of righteousness that have been well worn in this religious thing over the years. And, and the ruler is probably bound to a larger hierarchy, too. The ruler, like the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, the ruler probably has some oversight board. And their approval leaves him in good standing and, and, and reflects well in his personal righteousness. And so if he has people out breaking the rules, what does that say about him? So when Jesus breaks the rules, he creates insecurity in the ruler, because if the ruler is being undermined and there are no rules, then how am I supposed to lead these people to faithfulness? Because this is the system we've created, he thinks. So the synagogue ruler, as much as we'd like to think he is, is not actually a bad guy in the story. It's easy to demonize him and go, what a, he's a fool. He's just imperfect, a sinner wearing blinders like everyone else so bound by the rules that he missed the ruler in his presence. The politician may not be evil, just imperfect and blinded by their need for approval. The physician may not be a bad doctor. She's just got a practice to preserve and bills to pay. The pastor and the churchgoer, what do we say about them? I love Eugene Peterson when he says this. This makes me smile. It makes my heart sing. The biblical fact, he says, is that there are no successful churches. Churches. There are instead communities of sinners gathered before God week after week in towns and villages all over the world. Then he sums it up, he distills it like this. He says, every congregation is a congregation of sinners. And if that was not bad enough, they all have sinners for pastors. I love that. It reminds us who we are and where we are, that we are here but for the grace of God. And we aren't capital S sinners. That's not the scarlet letter we wear. We are capital S saints because he has found us and called us into himself. And yet, all blinded by our imperfection, all kind of walk in this path towards Christ's likeness we are all fallen and imperfect and sort of incapable of getting it right every time. What's my point? Acknowledging our propensity for brokenness is one of the most important things we can do. Recognizing that we can't recognize our approval agendas is like the key to getting this whole thing right. That's why we do it together. It's why we're called into community so that we can look at each other, we can be in each other's lives, we can begin to speak into each other with truth and with love. That's why we at Covenant Church don't have an all powerful senior pastor who makes all of our decisions. I may be called pastor, but pastor's sort of the same as elder, and I'm just one of seven elders. And and part of the reason I was drawn to this community is we have a strong governance by eldership, which means I don't show up and say, here's where we're going. I show up and say, I'm submitting to you, and they show up and say, I'm submitting to you. And and a group of people humbled before each other hold each other to account so that if I stand up here and say, we're going to go this way, and it's not biblical, and it's not the vision of the church, it's not the hope of the place, it's not blessing the city, then there are six people that are going to call me out immediately and go, that's not it at all. But it requires for each of us as elders in our construction to recognize that none of us have the market cornered on truth and that all of us have blind spots, that all of us are just short of kind of perfect sight, And therefore, we humble ourselves and rely on each other, we mutually submit to each other, and as such, we then walk a better path together because as one strays, we pull them back in, as another goes left, we pull them back right, and we get there together. The reason we have to do this is because we are all bound by this propensity to please people, and pleasing anyone less than God usually ends up going pretty poorly. We have a pandemic going on, the true universal pandemic is sin, and until we kind of recognize that in the, in the core of who we are, then we, we sort of blindly walk through life thinking we got some things figured out. So when Jesus leans into God's agenda of healing, he's interested in heavenly approval over human approval. He knows he's going to create a stir. He knows that this is going to be a problem. He's unconcerned. And this is our path to follow. Faithfully following Jesus means we seek heavenly approval over human approval in every action. And that sounds like cool and easy until you start trying to do it. So check your daily agenda. If you're one of these people that has a really good set calendar in the day, ask the question before every meeting, before every interaction, whose approval am I walking into this one for? See, what Jesus did when he heals this woman is he initiates a bit of gospel rebellion, I'm going to call it. And so what is God inviting you to do specifically? Even if it doesn't make sense to those around you, even if it won't win you earthly approval, what is God asking you to do? Like, who are you supposed to take to lunch? To reconcile? Who would you invite into your home? Who might you befriend or bless? What initiative might you pursue? What idea has He put in your heart that even if the world around you looked confused, as why are you doing that? It's the thing He's called you to do. I come from a devout Catholic family in San Antonio, Texas. My maternal grandfather is a prominent Catholic architect. He designed churches throughout Texas. He's a decent and honorable man. Faithful husband, volunteers in his community. For whatever reason, we say this a lot around here, that wasn't my path to Jesus. I, the Catholic path didn't connect from me. We have great Catholic brothers and sisters that are on the path with Jesus. So this is not anything in that realm. This is saying that for me God needed to get me out of that rule structure and into something else before he could open my eyes to show me Jesus. And so in high school by young life I was introduced to Jesus and a relationship with Jesus. And so I started attending a Protestant church because that's where I heard the voice of God, that's where I felt his presence. It was it was for me the place where God was. In college I felt a distinct call to move to South Africa as a missionary to serve the least of these work with people with AIDS and malnutrition. So I began to tell my family and friends, this is weird for me, when, when my Protestant pastor said, I think you're being called to be a missionary, I said, I don't know what that means. Is that like a priest or a nun? Because I don't know which one it is. And he was like, it's kind of something different. And I didn't know. Like, I just didn't have a context for it. So I tell my family, I make my kind of big announcement, this is what I think I'm supposed to go do. And they're like, well, this is kind of insane. And I went, yeah, I know, but here I go. And people would want to talk about it or ask me questions, and I, I, I understood that. It's kind of a strange thing to do. My maternal grandparents asked me out to dinner, which I thought was kind of nice. They took me to the nicest steakhouse in town, which I'd never been to. It's that place where they bring your steak out, and it's, still, it's on like a sizzling metal thing that you, it, it kills you if you touch it, but $45 for the piece of meat, and then the sides are how much more? And I thought, wow, this is fantastic. They must really love me. It's going really well for me. Let's have the steak, Grandpa. So we have steak dinner, and we small talked about the weather in their garden. They took me home. My grandmother had made my favorite pie, and then she served me a piece of pie with coffee after dinner. I'm sitting there on their floral, you know, kind of grandparently couch that they had. My grandfather kindly looked at me in the eyes, and he said, you're going straight to hell for leaving the Catholic Church. I said, thank you for the pie. Sorry to see it, he said. We're not going to support you at all. And frankly, you're a, you're a beacon of shame for our family that you've left the Catholic Church. And I calmly appealed to the mercy work I was going to do. I reminded him that we shared Jesus, that, that there was no real difference, that there were some ways that we displayed our faith differently. But I wasn't, wasn't opposed to what he was in and just got it built this other path, but we share Jesus. Jesus is the common link here. He said, that's nice of you to say you're going to burn in eternity. Like the synagogue ruler, he was bound by the rules so far in his denomination that he had missed the ruler. Like I said, he's a decent and honorable and faithful man. But the rules had become too big for him. Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What does he mean? He means the rule of Sabbath existed to guide people back to God, that the rules God has created exist to guide people back to God. To focus the distracted people on what matters, God's rules exist to exalt God, to remind us who's in charge and help us redirect our lives towards what He desires. The challenge of life is balancing submission to the authority as God puts it in place around us and the gospel rebellion that honors God along the way. Jesus rebelled and broke Sabbath, broke Sabbath. And in doing so, he became Sabbath, peace, whole rest for the woman that he healed she needed restoration and peace and connectedness with God. And so in breaking the Sabbath, he became her Sabbath. That is what he's done for you and I. He's become our resting place. So we don't, have to, we don't have to monitor the days of the week in the Old Testament way because he is our Sabbath. We are invited into gospel rebellion. I will define it like this. Gospel rebellion is walking opposed to rulers and to rules and rulers in order to be more in step with the king of kings. Our job in gospel rebellion is to walk opposed to rules and rulers in order to be more in step with the king of kings, meaning we're seeking justice and mercy, we're pursuing grace and love. that might raise the eyebrows of the friends you have who vote like you do or might cause your reputation at work to suffer or might have your neighbors looking at you sideways or might have the person in church next to you whispering about, what do you hear that they're up to? might even leave you outside of your grandfather's will. I can't tell you what it is for you. I can't tell you what God has invited you into when it comes to gospel rebellion in a culture that is dead set against his way. But if we are going to be followers of Jesus who attend for our lives to look like his... It means that we can expect that from time to time our worship of Him will lead us into actions that honor Him and leave us profoundly disapproved by the society around us. If we engage in gospel rebellion, in this chase of Jesus above all things as the ultimate ruler, as the King of kings, it will cause us to be misunderstood by our families. It will create confusion in our culture. It will create waves in the pool in which you live. So my question remains, what is it that God has put in front of you that might lead you into gospel rebellion in beautiful breaking of the rules of some culture or society so that God might be displayed in incredible beauty and grace? How have you been invited to walk opposed to rules and rulers in order to be more in step with the king of kings? This is not just about governments or organizations or denominations. This is not carte blanche to just start running through walls and saying, well, God told me to. Gospel rebellion is always initiated by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will never run counter to the Word of God. So there's a system of kind of checks here that we can't just say and do what we please. But within that, there is an invitation for each and every one of us to decide every day if we're walking in human approval or for heavenly, heavenly approval, and where we are, we're walking for less than what God has desired for us, for that human approval that comes and goes, that changes like the wind. The challenge for each of us is to say, what is it that God would approve of today, and how do I lean into that more and more? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for uh, Jesus and his example of rebellion in the most beautiful sense. Father, the great challenge of our days is not only that it's difficult to navigate a a modern, sophisticated, ever-changing world, but it's difficult to do it and not be secretly hoping that everybody looks at us and smiles and nods their head. In the world of social everything and digital everything and everybody kind of knowing what everyone else does, Lord, we are so often seeking something so far less than your approval. We're seeking the likes and the, the approval and the affirmation of those around us. And yet, Father, you've called us to live together and you've called us to challenge each other and to walk in this together. And, and so, God, help us bridge that seeming paradox of doing life together and yet not doing it for anything less than you. God, give us a sense of who you've called us into specifically, to love and serve and grace. What path are you building for each and every heart in this room? Towards gospel rebellion, towards beautiful, glorious mercy and grace. My prayer, finally, Lord, is that you would give each heart in here not only clarity as to where you're calling us to swim upstream, but you would give us courage to do it when the time comes. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his example. Thank you for salvation that we find in him. We pray in his name. Amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. we hope you'll join us soon every Sunday in person or online. Thanks for listening.